Welcome to the Infrastructure Show. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Schofer of Northwestern University. The Infrastructure Show is designed to present to listeners the reality of America's infrastructure, its condition, why it is the way it is, and what can be done about it. We gratefully acknowledge contributions to sustain the Infrastructure Show from Dr. Robert Peskin, Dr. Raymond Ellis, and Andrea and Ron DeFeo. Superfund is the informal name for the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act of 1980, which allows the Environmental Protection Agency to clean up contaminated sites in the United States. To learn more about this process, we look at a completed Superfund project, the 132-acre Eagle Zinc Superfund site in Hillsboro, Illinois, a small town northeast of St. Louis. Here with us to discuss this project is the EPA's Margaret Gilnevsky, who is Remedial Project Manager. Margaret, I'm really happy to be talking to you about this today. Thank you, Joseph. I really appreciate being on the show today. Thank you. So first, tell us what is a Superfund site? If I went there, would I know that it is such a site? What are its characteristics? Absolutely. So a Superfund site is can be located anywhere within the United States. Most people live within 10 miles of a Superfund site, so it can look like a neighborhood, and in this scenario, it looks like an open lot. If we flash back in time uh, about 10 years, this site would be covered with buildings that were used for the zinc production and uh, smelting processes. So uh, from the early 1912 to about 2000 and uh, 2007, um, the site was in operation as a zinc smelting operation, which means that they took ores that were full of zinc and processed them with sulfuric acid, amongst other things, to refine the ore to remove the zinc from, from other heavy metals that include lead, arsenic, cadmium, iron, and manganese. And the zinc was used essentially for, as a combination with other metals to make steel and other metals uh, rust resistant. So in this scenario, there were 23 buildings on this, on this uh, property that included laboratories and uh, to remove these heavy metals from and separate the zinc from these other heavy metals. So presumably there was some residue on this site that made it a Superfund site. Absolutely. So these heavy metals that weren't used in after the zinc was smelted from these other heavy metals, they combine and form what is called like a slag pile. So it's dirt and these heavy metals combined in these slag piles. And essentially, when these slag piles are left to themselves, they can eventually erode and then cause issues to people that come into contact with them, especially trespassers in this scenario because the site wasn't fenced. And then also for future reuse for construction workers or people who worked on the site for day to day um, could come into contact with these slag piles and have dermal contact or ingestion if they ended up touching the slag and that causes health issues. So, and, and what happened to the prior owner? Did they walk off or sell the property? owned by various owners throughout its operation, throughout its almost 90-year history. And um, most recently, it was owned by 
T.L. Diamond and Sherman Williams. And unfortunately, T.L. Diamond went bankrupt. So EPA was able to do a cost collection settlement that would help pay for part of the cleanup at the site, mostly the investigation work. And EPA also had a settlement with Sherwin Williams, who later owned the property before T.L. Diamond and uh, was able to get some money from Sherman Williams. Ah, so that money contributes to the cleanup costs? It did. It contributed to both the investigation costs and the cleanup costs at the site. At this point, do you know if that was that sufficient or was, was there public money that went into the cleanup? Oh, definitely not. It was uh, small settlement agreements in the couple hundred thousands. This remedial cleanup um, for the first remedial action, which was doing the site security, putting up fences so uh, around the perimeter so trespassers wouldn't get onto the property and get into these contaminated buildings and slag piles. That cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then a few years later in 2012, EPA took an interim action, meaning they, um, with this interim action, they demolished all the buildings that were on the property and all the sub and all the surface structures that were on this property to make sure that nobody would get in, um, hurt when they were on this property and then left it open for us to later come in and clean up these slag piles. And that interim action cost $4 million. And then meanwhile, our most current action, which is addressing these slag piles um, and building this 10-acre containment cell, as well as restoring the wetland on that property, cost about $25 million. That's a big cost, a big difference. So, so the... the um the prior owner who contributed to this problem doesn't have any remaining liability to help cover those costs? Well, they went bankrupt, so then they weren't able so to. So they have no money. Right. Okay. I get that. So tell us more specifically about the cleanup process that you went through. Certainly. So uh, as far as the cleanup, we once we got the site secured, we put the perimeter fencing around the site. Um, we... In 2009, we did an emergency action to provide site site fencing, and then later in 2009, we wrote a record of decision, which essentially recorded our decision to clean up the remainder of the site, and we did controlled building demolition, as I was saying, and these buildings contained asbestos-containing material because asbestos was a fire retardant that was commonly used in buildings. Uh, Now we know that it's a hazard Um, So we got rid of those. We did recycling of salvageable building materials, and we did the on-site management of remaining demolition debris and consolidated them um, that would eventually become consolidated into that 10-acre cell that I was talking about. So tell tell us about that 10-acre cell. Absolutely. So um, in 2017, EPA, I guess, before I talk about the 10-acre cell, it's prudent for me to mention that in 2017, EPA signed an agreement with the United States Army Corps of Engineers where we would use them for, we would rely on the Corps for remedial hazardous waste technical cleanup assistance, which essentially that means that we would have the Army Corps review our um, remedial design, which was designing this 10-acre cell and the placement of all these slag piles into this containment cell because the slag waste took about 30 acres of the property and we want to consolidate it and put it into this cell. 
And so we signed this agreement with the Army Corps, and not only did they review our design, but then they were also our day-to-day construction managers on the site, meaning they oversaw these construction contractors and also the environmental contractors. So while we're on site, we do construction management and also environmental management where we collect samples on a day-to-day basis to make sure that there's no fugitive or runoff um, contamination from the site. And in this case, it would be dust management, making sure that no dust would leave the site and go into residential neighborhoods that were nearby. So is, is it typical that you would work in, in, in consort with the Army Corps on a project like this? It's, um, and especially with the zinc smelter sites, it has been a recent trend at EPA to use the Army Corps of Engineers for the zinc smelter sites. Um, in 1980, as you mentioned, the Superfund was put into act, and um, in 1982 and then again in 1984, EPA signed, signed a groundbreaking partnership agreement where EPA can rely on the Corps for remedial hazardous waste technical cleanup assistance, and so it was expected that the U.S. EPA would utilize the Army Corps to do these types of projects, um, very Superfund projects, and in this scenario... For these zinc smelter sites, it seems to be working out really well for the EPA and as well as the Army Corps of Engineers. So am, am I distorting the story to say that the Army Corps has more boots on the ground people to, to monitor the construction process than, than EPA? That's absolutely correct. We had the Army Corps there on a day-to-day basis, and they were overseeing the construction um, the construction contractors and the environmental contractors on a day-to-day basis. And when change orders came up, came up for the contract, um, you know, the Army Corps would deal with all the change orders. And if situations changed on the site, they would deal with that and be in contact with me at the EPA to ultimately make the final decisions. But they were there, boots on the ground, as you stated. Okay. All right. Now I understand. So tell us more then about how you uh, treated the, uh, the hazardous material on the site. Absolutely. So... Um, about 6,000 cubic yards of the most heavily contaminated slag, the ones that had arsenic and lead in it, as well as cadmium and manganese, um, before they were placed into the cell, they were treated with uh, a Portland cement mixture to make it even more solidified to prevent them from leaching. It's leaching essentially is if it comes into water, uh, any chemical or any any element when it comes into contact with water could eventually come out of that flag structure and then eventually lead into the groundwater. So we were able to treat that before placing into the containment cell. And then as well as the 30 acres that was highly contaminated with those slag piles, we were able to scrape up over 300,000 cubic yards of slag contaminated material and put it into this lined containment cell. Not only is it lined with a liner, but also clay material. And then once it was put into this containment cell, we also put in the rest of the demolition debris that was left on the site from that early interim action. We put that in the site as well. And then it met compaction standards. And once we met the compaction standards, then we were able to put another clay cap on top of that. And then on top of that, clean soil and essentially... um, grass seed on top of it to cover the the cell to prevent it from eroding in the future. So this containment cell was not a small uh, piece of property, was it? Not at all. It's 
10 acres of the property of the 132 acre property. And essentially there's another 10 acres that's used for wetland and floodplain. So ultimately remaining is about over a hundred acres left for the city to redevelop once they take over ownership of the site. Yeah, that's a lot of that's, that's a lot of land. So you talked about encapsulating it with clay, and, I, and I've I've heard about that process. But th- it sounded like there was another material that you used to seal the the uh, debris. What was that? We used a, a liner. Uh, I'm not exactly certain what the liner was made from, but generally it's the plastic liner, and then we put clay on you know on top of that to prevent it anything that's in the containment itself from leaching into the ground. So presumably that liner was um, ev- everything proof. It was waterproof at least. Absolutely, yes. And then so there, that we have the, the uh, contaminated material that I'm going to call it a synthetic liner and then compacted clay. Perfect, yes. Sounds like a really big project. So I'm going to go back and, and uh, remind listeners that you also uh, solidified this material with uh, Portland cement and specifically to prevent uh, leaching into the water supply. Does that, I mean, get, am I getting that right? That's right, but only the most heavily contaminated slag material, the one that wouldn't meet leachability standards. Mm. So that was about 6,000 cubic yards out of the over 300,000 cubic yards that was placed in the cell, so relatively a small fraction. So it sounds to me like in the process, you, your people in the field or your contractors were doing a lot of sampling to know exactly, because it's this is not material that you can assess by looking at it. You've got to do some kind of chemical sampling to assess what you've got there. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, there were day-to-day sampling. Every, every single day, they, not only were they sampling these slag piles and then fractioning the slag piles into smaller, uh, work more manageable units and determining what was the most highly contaminated from those slag piles, placing them to a separate pile to be then mixed with the Portland cement mixture. But there was also, as I stated, the environmental sampling to make sure there wasn't there was air monitoring to make sure there wasn't fugitive dust leaving the site. And then there was also surface water sampling to make sure that none of the surface water that came in contact with the slag was leaving the site. And, and as you're describing it, it sounds like the people in the field needed some kind of personal protective equipment just to, to be there. Absolutely. So what we call level A dress out, we were not required to wear level A dress out, which is the moon suits that everyone's picturing, but they were wearing Tyvek suits and um, and also hard hats, steel toe boots. There wasn't a need for respiratory protection, so they weren't wearing any kind of respiratory mm-hmm. protection. But they were wearing nitrile gloves and other gloves um, when winter came around when they were working on this project. So skin protection primarily, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. I understand that part of the process uh, was relocating a stream. Was is that uh, why was that necessary? Right. So the reason why we relocated the stream was to uh, make the site prevent it from future flooding in the area in the vicinity. So it was realigning the stream to flow into the wetland and then make it easier for reuse at the site later. I've I've read something about subsequently some contamination found off-site in some streams and, and nearby residential areas. Was that a serious problem, and, and how did you address that? Absolutely. So during the process of doing our remedial investigation, we sampled the nearby residential neighborhood, and we did find lead in elevated concentrations at um, eight properties 
uh, due to access, we were able to clean up six of these properties and remove the lead that was surrounding around their house. And um, as far as um, lead and or as far as other contaminants in in the nearby streams and nearby Lake Hillsborough and the sediment there and in these ephemeral streams, EPA is still currently investigating and um, determining the extent of the, that contamination that left off site. But we did clean up the residential neighborhood uh, to the extent possible, you know, based on access. Now, there's no more risk there. So who owns the, uh, now, who owns the primary site? So the Eagles Inc. property is now owned by the city of Hillsborough, and they gave EPA access to do this cleanup, and their plans are to redevelop these remaining 100 acres into an industrial park. It seems to be the only remaining um, unused property in Hillsborough, so it would be lucrative to redevelop it because it's next to a rail spur, and then also the high-pressure water uh, treatment facility is right across uh, the way, so high-pressure water um, is available for any industry that moves in in that area. Ah, so it sounds like they're 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 going to take advantage of the of the unique value of the site. Is are there any restrictions to how that site could be used other than industrial application? Absolutely. So you're right. There's um, what is called an institutional control in place that prevents the site from being used in other applications other than industrial commercial. So there's no residential properties can be built on this land. Who enforces that? Is that on your agenda or does the, is the city responsible? So it, it's a multifaceted process where EPA works with the state and the local governments to prevent um, people from using the site in any way that was not in, as its intended use and also to prevent disruption of that 10-acre cell. And EPA will keep track of it. Every five years, we do a review of the remedy in what's called a five-year review. So we track to make sure that these institutional controls that prevent use otherwise than designated at the site um, uh, are still in place and still effective. And if they're not, then we work with our local partners, again, the city and the state, um, to make sure that the site isn't used for other than industrial commercial purposes. So in those five-year reviews, do you go back to the, or you send somebody back to the site to do sampling? Absolutely. So uh, at the very minimum, we come back and we walk the perimeter of the site. We make sure that everything is functioning as intended. We come and eventually we'll do install monitoring wells, additional monitoring wells at the site to check for the groundwater contamination. And then we'll look at the repair status of the cap, make sure the cap on the 10-acre cell is intact. And um, then we write our recommendations and any issues that we encountered um, that are contrary to what was selected as the cleanup in the record of the decision. So this is a really big project. Is it is it large relative to other Superfund projects? It's, I would say, on the medium side of the Superfund site. I have some sites that are, you know, mom and pop dry cleaning shops that are only a few acres in, si- in size, but this is my largest project in as far as acreage and in cost as well. But there's some projects that are hundreds of millions of dollars, and um, especially with these zinc smelter sites that are, are larger um, kind of scope sites, you know, they 
they're quite costly and require a lot of work um, and project uh, management skills. Sounds like a tour de force in the sense that there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle that you had to manage. Was it a, a good professional challenge for you? Absolutely. And I can't say that I can't take all the credit. I have to give a lot of properties to both the Army Corps of Engineers and also my state counterpart from Illinois EPA. Um, my Illinois counterpart was also able to have boots on the ground and help the Army Corps. And I would come visit from Chicago um, and make sure that things were progressing as intended. So, you know, without without this wonderful team of players, EPA has a hard time making these super fun sites work. So we rely on these other agencies and we rely on our contractors and we rely on our state partners to make sure that these cleanups happen as intended. The scale and complexity uh, certainly justify and and demand this kind of collaboration. Margaret, I really appreciate your sharing this with me. I've heard lots of stories about Superfund sites and I think I know a little bit more than I, I knew before. And I'm glad that you spent the time with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What you're doing is really important for the nation. We're glad to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Infrastructure Show. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, please subscribe to our podcast and encourage your friends to join us too. The Infrastructure Show is recorded at the Studio Media Recording Company in Evanston, Illinois under the direction of Scott Steinman, recording engineer with a commitment to great sound. Our producer is Marion Sowers, a journalist with a passion for infrastructure. And I am Professor Joseph Schofer. Few people are more curious about infrastructure than I.